Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. Of course. Well, we'll be, we'll be talking about some very interesting topics on today's show. And you are a great guest because of your history and your background, specifically within sort of the fintech space. But I'd like to go a bit you know, further back into your history, which is the fact that you're from Sweden. And Sweden, I don't know if that had, had any influence on your entrepreneurial bend or the way you think, but did culture play a role in you deciding to become an entrepreneur and do the things that you actually decided to do in your career? Um, well, I mean, the, the, the Swedish culture is, is one of uh, feeling safe, right? So if you, if you know that the worst thing that can happen to you is that you're, you're still, you're good, uh, I think that's the culture part that makes it easier to become an entrepreneur as a Swede compared to any other culture. But first and foremost, it was my family. Uh, my father's an entrepreneur, my brother's an entrepreneur. So that's, that was a natural way for me to go. Ah, that makes sense. And some of the best, I mean, companies out there are founded by Swedes. I had the chance to go to Sweden multiple times. I have great Swedish friends and they all seem to either be somewhat entrepreneurial or be very forward looking into the future and be willing to try new things. So even beyond your family, there might be some cultural elements there as well. Yeah. And, and I mean, just the general education is, is great. Uh, you basically get paid to go to school. So I think that's one of the, the basis, right? Wow. Getting paid to go to school. That's so different from uh, the US and the UK, completely different as opposed to going into debt. You're actually getting paid to go to school. I guess there's a part of being an entrepreneur whereby uh, people give you the freedom uh, if you don't have that debt or that burden on your head that allows you to even take risks because that's a big part of it, right? Taking risks, but taking calculated risks, so to speak. Uh, yeah, no, it makes total sense. So uh, it, as an entrepreneur, you, you are you're almost geared to be overly positive, uh, but you always need to have in mind, like what's the worst that, that can happen. And if the worst can happen is, is not that bad, then yeah, it's easier to make that decision. Yeah, no, I completely understand that. So kind of switching tack a little bit. So you started a company quite a few years ago um, in, in the sort of investing space. And so I wanted to come to the, the, the beginnings of you deciding to do that. Did you always know about investing or is this something that you stumbled upon and then decided that there was a pain point you needed to solve? How did you decide to you know, start a FinTech more specifically about investing? Yes. I mean, I started trading when I was 14 years old. Uh, I took money I, I made from my summer job as at this ice cream stand uh, and put it into the markets and managed to do some good trades and I, I was hooked. And from that time up until I was 20, I accumulated enough to, to uh, help me go to college in the US. Um, and along that way, I always had friends saying, hey, can you give me a stock tips? Um, can you manage my money? And I always said, I won't give you a stock tip. I won't manage your money, but what I will do I'll share my portfolio, I share my trades, and I explain why I make those decisions, and then it's up for you to make that decision yourself. And that kind of was the basis on, on what we started. Yeah, I, I can imagine there's a bit of reluctance to take on that responsibility to say, hey, I told you to make this trade, and then they'll be like, hey, you told me to do this and it didn't work out. Was that a factor in your thinking as well, not taking on that responsibility and maybe partly educating other people? That's a big responsibility as well. Yeah, well, I mean, 
uh, I'm always for educating people. Uh, and that's kind of what sprinkle bit is for the, the social part. Right. Uh, so, uh, I'm more than happy to sit down and, and educate someone about trading and, and investing and things like that. Um, but in terms of, uh, giving people stock tips, I don't know their end game, right? So it comes to a suitability question. And now, uh, decades removed from, uh, uh, being licensed and things like that. Uh, it's almost like I get more and more, um, uh, decoupled from, from taking risks in terms of, uh, guiding other people. Um, but one of the main thing is suitability, right? So, how do I know that what I think is a suitable investment for me is a suitable investment for you? Um, so that's why I, I wouldn't recommend anyone to make stock tips, but I love sharing ideas on why you believe in companies and why you, you think it's a good investment opportunity, et cetera. Yeah, no, that makes sense. When you decided to start off, you know, FinTech wasn't a thing, or I can imagine there weren't many apps that were out there that were kind of doing what you were doing how did you even go about starting this? Because I can imagine there was the regulation, there was user design, there was all these things. This is way before Robin Hood or, or free trade or any of these guys. So, I mean, how did you get into this FinTech space and actually start things before it became a thing and be, before it became cool? Uh, well, I mean, uh, actually the first online banking in the world was in Sweden in the nineties. So maybe that was the, the birth of, of FinTech. Uh, so in that way, uh, it kind of came natural, right? And uh, it started from the end that uh, we had this community where you can talk about investing and we made a stock market simulator and then we needed to have um, the trading component uh, to trade with real money. So just one thing led to another to build out this suite of services. Um, and for us, it was just natural to, to build out a, a fintech ecosystem. And when it came to regulation or anything like that, did you know much about that when you decided to get going? Because I can imagine I'd be too scared to even try this because you don't want the FCA knocking on your door, right? Yes, I mean, uh, maybe that was one thing that uh, we were overly optimistic in terms of timing when working with regulators, right? So uh, now looking back uh, almost a, a decade later, um, having the experience we have with multiple regulators in multiple jurisdictions. Um, yeah, it, it is a daunting task to get started. Uh, so for example, if yourself wanted to uh, start a FinTech today, I would almost recommend not doing two things at once. So basically, if you start a FinTech, you have two risks. You have technical risk and regulatory risk. Um, by partnering up with one or another, you solve for one of those risks. So you can always partner up with, for example, a broker to start, and then you work on the technical side, and then you can go ahead and you can uh, create your own broker and get, get licensed. Um, and that was basically the, the strategy that we ended up taking back in, in 2012. Uh, and now we run our own broker dealer. So um, definitely worth looking into what, what risks in terms of technical inventory risks. Was there an element of trying to create the demand for your product or service, or was the demand already there in the market? And the reason why I ask that is because a lot of people go to school, but they don't get educated on investing per se, or how to you know, 
grow wealth for the long term and all that kind of stuff. It's not until you read a book or someone introduces it to you or your family or your culture, all those types of things make you start to think about investing. And then you want to dabble into it and you grow. As you mentioned, when you were 14, you started off and then you you sort of, you, you sort of grew into it. Did you have to do a campaign or awareness or was the demand so strong that once you launched, there, were, there was enough demand there that people came to find you and there was good product market fit? Yes, I mean, uh, we've always had an organic attraction to, to the, the platform we, we provide in terms of people want to learn this. Uh, and before us, the only way you could do it was um, you go to your, your broker and you lose a lot of money trying it out. So uh, we basically uh, framed it as Sprinklebit is your risk-free way to get started, right? Um, so already from the beginning, we saw there was a lot of interest in, in that part. And in the beginning, we didn't have the brokerage part. So basically, we were a great customer acquisition channel for other brokers. But at the end of the day, we feel comfortable that we've helped thousands and thousands of traders um, to get started. Um, and now adding Sprinkle Brokerage, which is our broker-dealer, adding Sprinkle Exchange, which is our uh, exchange. Now we're also seeing the, seeing the benefits of providing this new investor base with new tools. Yeah, yeah. Something that's interesting about your platform is there's kind of a social aspect to it, which is sort of you can mimic someone's trades or you can you know get that advice piece that you were mentioning as opposed to me as an individual having to watch 20 hours of Bloomberg news or read the FT from 15 years before I know what I'm doing. Why is it a good thing to just mimic someone else? Because I could just be doing it blindly. And then maybe we'll talk a little bit about the whole social aspect. I don't know if there's any sort of community that you've created, but just the ability to mimic someone else. Is that a good or a bad thing? I'm not quite sure. Uh, the, the main thing behind it is the why. So if you mimic someone, you don't know the why, I wouldn't see it's a good thing. Um, because then it's basically copy paste, right? But for example, if somebody shows you and say, Hey, I made this trade because of this and you copy that person, um, you're, you're learning tidbits along the way. Um, so it's a more bite-sized way of, of learning. Uh, but I wouldn't recommend just blindly copy people. And it comes yeah. back again to suitability, right? So you don't know what their uh, risk thresholds are. I mean, it could be somebody that are willing to lose everything, whereas you have your life savings in, in the same uh, portfolio, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so when it came to building this community, is there a sort of shared aspect to it? Because when I think of, of your platform, I, I think of the other competitors that you have, and I, I can't see any anyone else's trades. I can't see what else they're doing. It's kind of just me on my own. But yours, I imagine it's a bit of sharing or a social aspect to it as well. And why did you think that was important? Uh, well, I mean, it comes back to actually how I started Sprinklebit. So uh, this was back in 2010. I started uh, research back in Europe, University of California, San Diego. Uh, and the research was, can you crowdsource better investment decisions? Right? So uh, basically I had two test groups. One was with retail investor. Another one was, was with professional fund managers. And the really interesting part of that research was we could tell you with an 87% certainty, um, if a stock is going to catch an alpha or not, basically returning more than expected of its, uh, risk. Um, so 
with that, we've realized the power of the crowd uh, is huge. Um, so that's just on the algorithmic side. Now, once we put them together and they can start talking with each other, um, you have some unique things happening again. So for example, you can have someone who's really, really focused on gaming, right? But they know nothing about the fundamentals of the company. So I'll give you an example. This was probably four years ago, something like that. Um, an individual on the platform said, hey, uh, AMD is coming out with some new chips. This is really revolutionary, uh, but I don't know how to invest in it. Then on the um, investment side of things, you had people had with that skill set going and looking at a company and like, holy crap, this is could be multiple X in terms of returns. Yeah, we think that's a good investment. So now you kind of see two sides of um, coming together. Uh, and I don't know if you've seen uh, uh, MD later, but I think it's around 50 bucks or something like that. So you've gone from 250 to 50 bucks. So uh, that's, a, that's a success story. Uh, we have another one where, for example, I can just look at myself. I know nothing about life science. That's not my forte. Uh, so I have my group of life science people that I go to in order to say, hey, what's the latest there? Um, so that, that in that way, the community you can build up kind of like uh, expert within different sectors. Yeah, man, I, I got burned with AMD. And the reason why is because I worked in a company where I knew that AMD were releasing some amazing chips and I could see their whole lineup before it is even released. And I bought some and it went really high, but I pulled all my money out because I needed the cash for something else. And then it just completely skyrocketed. And I, I, I couldn't help but, you know, want to pinch myself. I couldn't believe I had pulled out. And then you start to get to a point that you're like, um, well, it can't go higher than it is now. So there's no point in getting back in and it just keeps on going higher. Anyway, that's just about me and AMD. I have a bit of a thing there, I, but, um, I have, the, I have the same thing with Netflix and Tesla. So I made great ride both on, on Netflix. Uh, I was early in, uh, at Netflix when they hit 200, I'm like, I'm out. I <laughs> went from, from 30 to 200. I'm, I'm super lucky. They can't go higher. And of course they did. I think it was at the time when they were at the same market cap as Disney, I was like, no, I'm getting uncomfortable, right? Um, yeah. And uh, Tesla was a, was a similar thing uh, where their market cap was getting as, as high as like uh, uh, GM or something. I'm like, no, I'm getting uncomfortable. Yeah, it's almost like this is too good to be true. Maybe the, it, we're in a bit of a bubble or something like that, but either the bubble just keeps inflating or the fundamentals are so strong that they have a, a, a good product. The, the market needs it. They don't have a high debt burden as compared to, you know, the other companies and all those types of things. So, you know, all that takes time and, and, and really faith in your capabilities and the knowledge that you've been able to accrue from your community in order to make a good investment decision. But a lot of people still lose money using, you know, apps like yourself and, and apps like others. Is there anything you're doing to try and help people improve that win ratio or their success ratio? Or is that not really your concern because you're just giving them the platform and giving them access to other people that they can see? Yes. Uh, so that's actually something we're very proud of. Um, uh, out of the last uh, nine years, we've been beating the market eight. So 2019 was the only year we haven't beat the market when it comes to the median return. 
Um, so, so we can really see that individuals that join the community are making better returns. And even now, um, in, um, uh, at the end of Q2, when S&P actually was down, we had a median return of 8%. Uh, so we can actually see that we, we do get some, some good returns. Um, but then one of the, the main things that we're trying to teach people is put on your stop loss, right? So you're, you're putting on your trade. Uh, as soon as you put on a trade, put in that stop loss. Uh, and once you're stopped out, just revisit it. If you want to go back into to that investment, that's fine. But take a step back and don't stay in with an investment just because you're down, right? You, it's almost like, okay, you planned it and work out, now reassess. Uh, that's one of the biggest problems that, that I see beginners do is they say, hey, this stock is down. All right, I'm going to hold it until it come, comes back up. But maybe there's a fundamental change in that company and now all of a sudden you're stuck. Yeah, that's actually quite interesting. I, um, I actually had the opposite problem, which was I would – I would get too hesitant when anytime I saw a stock go down because I'd be like, Oh, it's going down. I don't want to lose too much money. And maybe it's cause I didn't have the stop loss. Um, and I would pull money out and then a week later it's back up again. And it's like, man, I should have just believed in myself and my thesis and what I, what I had planned. You know what I mean? So that what I've learned a lot from investing is the emotional, um, toll or the emotional balance you need to actually be a good investor, which is to put those mechanisms in place to not be too happy if it goes up by 5% and then too sad if it goes that you know, you need to have some sort of um, bandwidth and emotional resilience and all those types of things. Uh, it, that sounds like one of the key problems that beginner or nascent investors go through, but are there any other common problems that beginners go through as well that you've noticed based on, you know, doing this for nine to 10 years and seeing the data? Uh, yeah, another big mistake people does is they put too much money into one investment, right? So uh, you need to spit it out a little bit uh, because just because you love one investment, it doesn't mean that that's going to uh, be the home run. Uh, so it's always better to, to spread out a little bit in terms of uh, risk. I understand that uh, when you sit down with a portfolio manager, they're like, okay, you need to be within 27 different asset classes. You need to have this, 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 and this. And as a beginner, you can't really do that. Um, so what I still recommend is, hey, if you're saving for your life savings, put 80% of that in boring stuff, so put it in ETFs and things like that. But that 20% that you actually can be active with, you still need to spread that out. I mean, you don't want to go all in with, with just one investment, right? Um, that's a, uh, what we see a lot of mistakes being done. And before you had these uh, zero commission uh, trades, that was also a big mistake we see people do. It's like, hey, you place a $100 trade and it's eight bucks in commission. It's like, you need to make a return of 16% just to make money, right? That was also yeah. what we saw in the beginning. Uh, as you mentioned, we were pre-fintech uh, where you actually paid 10 bucks per trade. In fact, that, that was actually leading to my next question, which is, you know, the Robin Hoods of the world and all these other guys, when they came into the game and really disrupted the business model, what did that mean for you as a business? And I mean, why, why do you think you didn't become the first mover to actually go for, you know, free commission, free trades and all that kind of stuff? It comes back to money. Uh, so 
what you need to do in order to, to be successful in what they did is you need to have uh, financially strong backers. Uh, they've amassed huge losses the, the first three, four years, right? Um, because uh, when they were with their previous clearing firm called Apex, they're basically losing money on every single trade. Whereas now they're making money on every single trade. Uh, so once you reach a certain volume uh, in, in the, the brokerage space, that's when you start making, making money. Uh, so for us, it was never an alternative of just going completely free to start with and, and try to, to uh, uh, compete with the, the rest of the business because that infrastructure wasn't there at the time. Now, even the clearing firm has changed their rates and things like that. So now it's much easier to, to offer a, a zero commission. But when they came in, uh, even if they offered zero, they still need to pay their clearing firm uh, and they could make the money back in terms of margin. They could make money back in terms of securities lending, all of that. Um, but it still wasn't enough to cover for, for uh, the clearing fees that they had. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I, it's kind of, I don't want to say unfair, but a lot of these startups, if they have big backers with deep wallets, they can get away with murder until they solve the problem later on of actual monetization and all that. But I know you, you guys raised about 10 million in 2016 or sometime around there. What did you guys do with that money? Was that to try and see if you could compete with these guys or was it for marketing purposes or what have you done with the money to, to date? And then how have you actually responded to the, these competitors in the market? Yeah, so, so we took a more holistic approach. Uh, so uh, we built out a complete ecosystem. So if you look at Sprinklebit today, basically the, the social features you have is very similar to Facebook. So we built out that whole social uh, suite. Um, so that's one. The other thing is uh, we built the full trading system for Sprinkle Brokerage, the middle office and, and everything you need there. But then kind of the, the crown jewel on what we're working on is we develop a full clearing and settlement system uh, using blockchain. So for example, last year, we actually listed um, a global depository receipt of Spotify on Sprinkle Exchange. That means you can go buy Spotify for Bitcoin and you can do it at any time of day. Um, you can use, uh, uh, USD coin, which means that you can basically trade in and out on a Saturday uh, where you move your money from uh, the US to Sprinkle Exchange, you trade a little bit and you move the money out and all of that can be done within like a time, uh, 10 minutes time frame. Um, so that's where we see the future of capital markets going is basically using a blockchain technology uh, instead of this old school uh, clearing and settlement technology we have today. So that's basically what we've been uh, focusing our resources. Yeah, I can imagine the adoption of blockchain wasn't an easy thing to do initially because you need expertise, you need to really understand the technology, um, you kind of need to change the way your business works fundamentally. Um, and blockchain and crypto also are, are kind of somewhat linked as well. At least they're both new technology, somewhat decentralized, not controlled by the government, all those kinds of things. Um, what did that do for you when crypto came to the advent? Uh, in terms of Bitcoin, because it was, you know, it's very 
up and down, especially when it first started off. People lost a lot of money. There was a lot of stigma around it. I think it was uh, Jamie Dimon that said that this is never going to take off. And then he obviously changed his tune later on. But when it came to adopting these new technologies, what was that journey like? And what were the biggest lessons you learned when trying to bring in these new types of technologies to your platform? So, so one thing that, that's uh, kind of a given is new technology and regulators, they don't, they don't play together. It's, it's almost like either or, right? Uh, so uh, we got a lot of uh, kind of kickback in, in terms of pushing these technologies uh, forward. Uh, so that was, it took a lot of time to educate uh, people. Uh, but exactly as you're just saying is if there's a new technology, there's an additional layer of risk you're adding, right? So all of a sudden your timeline is going to be different in terms of where you get the, the func from basically just getting a prototype to a functional uh, production unit uh, is very, if you're not like a, a given entrepreneur, it can be uh, kind of uncomfortable. Um, because you don't know uh, if, if you, you're going to put together this system, you can't get a clear timeline. So that's one thing that we've learned is, is uh, basically um, you would have to commit to it and then be very agile. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's something that I see a lot of challenger banks as well doing, especially here in the UK, Revolut and all those guys, they're trying to add on investment platforms and then add on new technologies like cryptocurrency and all those types of things. So to your point about being agile, I see that happening, but in the market in general, are you nervous or worried about the fact that some of these big players have the deep pockets or they have the market presence and the marketing budget and the awareness and all those types of things. And those things are going to crowd you out regardless of if you were the first to do certain things or if yours is actually better that these large players just have so much heft that they're, they're going to beat you to the, to, to the finish line. Uh, here's the thing. The market is so big. We're talking about a global market. It's no longer it's like, Hey, we're going to go after just this country and do this, 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 and this. So we see it that it's big enough to, to cater to all of these players. I'm not, I'm not worried about other fintechs coming in and, and, and competing with us because there's always enough business to, to, to be done. Um, where we kind of see the opportunity is together with the rest of the fintechs competing with incumbents because we're still small in comparison to, to the incumbents. So, uh, for me, I'm just excited we have more players in, in the, the game, so to speak, because it's going to push everything forward. The worst thing you can do is be alone in the market because there's two things. It could be the, the customer doesn't know that that market exists uh, or maybe it's not something that people want. So once you start seeing competitions, once you, you, you start seeing there's more players in the field, you know you're in the right place. Yeah, that's quite interesting. Sometimes competitors or having competitors is a good thing. Most people think having competitors is a bad thing. So it's interesting the fact that you're sort of challenging that on its head and saying, no, that means that there's a demand for this product or service, right? Yeah, I mean, imagine if there would have been not a single brokerage platform uh, and then we provide one and we tried to, we would still have to educate you on what it is, how it works, how comfortable would you be to put your money there? You wouldn't be that comfortable. But now with all these 
uh, other fintechs, they're actually doing the education uh, and then it comes back to product and services. So if we can list better assets so you can get better returns, if you, we can give you a better user experience, um, the switching costs are getting lower and lower. So in that way, I see it as, as a benefit. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Something else that's happened in the market recently is about the fact that there are white label solutions available now. You don't actually have to start up from scratch. You can go to whoever it is, Modular or Contis, and then ask them to give you the platform. And then you just take care of the, the marketing and the customer experience and all that. But then they run the back end of that. Given that you kind of built the infrastructure yourself from scratch, did you ever consider white labeling and then offering it to other some to other people and then just sitting back and collecting a nice royalty fee at the end of it or is that something that has been off 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 your uh off your plate uh it's interesting you say that because we have received a lot of requests when it comes to white labeling the the social solution um but we've always st stand firm to say hey you want that network effect imagine if facebook was white labeled in every single country and you wouldn't be able to cross communicate. It would be kind of hurtful to the community, right? So that was one thing where we took a stance and say, hey, we're not gonna white label our social solution. Uh, on the uh, brokerage solution, we are now looking at some partner to do that with, but that's more of the, the trading side of things. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I understand that, but the allure and the tempt I don't know if someone has ever dangled like a nice carrot in front of you and been like, Hey, we can offer you this amount as an entrepreneur. You know, something that's quite interesting for me as well is looking at your history and background. You've stayed on this path for a long time. You stayed focused. You haven't really, I don't want to say sold out or anything like that, but you didn't white label your solution. You kind of stuck to, to your guns. Most people four or five years, they'll get an exit, maybe sell the business and kind of call it happy days. Why? Or how have you been able to maintain that level of focus and not get dissuaded in terms of either different products and services or with, you know, carrots or shiny objects that might look like good uh, things to do in the short term, but not necessarily for the long term? Is that just based on you as an individual or, or, or is there a culture that you had or how did you do that? Uh, well, I mean, uh, already from the beginning, we, we had this grand view of, of providing uh, these, this ecosystem, right? Uh, so we had more than enough to, to chew. <laughs> so only now, almost a decade later, that's when we have uh, basically the, the full suites of, of services we wanted to have. So for me, every new milestone, every new service we roll out is almost like you, you get one new baby and you, you basically build this up. Uh, so it never felt to me that, hey, we've just been doing one thing for 10 years. Well, no, we've been growing into to something bigger. Um, but coming back to, to uh, culture and, and, uh, and um, basically where I'm from is I've never been driven from the economic side. I understand from, for our shareholders and, and uh, from that purpose that, that we need to make money, we need to be profitable. Uh, but me personally, to sell out to make a buck, there, there's no uh, personal gain in that. I'm, I wake up in the morning because I want to provide this service for, for millions of people, uh, not because I want millions in my bank account. So, so that's one of the, the key drivers that keep me going. And another thing that's interesting is they usually say that uh, running a, st a startup is like a marathon. 
Uh, well, me personally, I, I uh, got forced into doing an Ironman. And for me now, this is almost like Ironman instead. <laughs> yeah, I guess Ironman is more like it, uh, especially given how tough the hurdles are and how, um, how disparate the different types of hurdles you have to come across. There's everything from regulation to the people you hire to you know, the carrots that are dangled in front of you. There's so many different parts of it. And I actually just wanted to touch on one of those parts, which is the people that you, you brought on along this journey with you. How did you go about assembling your team? And how did you go about developing a culture that's allowed you to be, you know, consistent and, and remain relevant in the space for so long? Uh, yeah, so, so, so growing the team uh, has to do with um, uh, what are your needs? Uh, who can help you to, to where you want to go. Um, so um, uh, one of the co-founders of Spotify, he said a good thing. He said, if you're looking for a wife, look for someone who's similar to you, has similar interests. If you're looking for a business partner, look for the opposite, somebody who can complete you. Uh, so in terms of assembling a team, uh, I know what I'm good at and what I'm bad at. Anything that I'm really bad at, that's where you need to hire people first. Um, and then when you start getting more and more people involved, slowly but surely, you wanna to try to, to hire people to actually replace yourself so you don't become kind of the, the uh, bottleneck in terms of the improvement of the company. Uh, so those are the, the, the two main things that I've learned uh, along the way. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Uh, we've come to sort of the end of our discussion. This has been amazing. I, I'm sure that our audience wants to hear more about this, but if you could just give us uh, you know, a couple lines about how people can find you, where they can follow you, and what you're hoping to do in the next couple of months. Yeah, uh, so I'm pretty easy to find. Uh, you just uh, download the Sprinklebit application, and I'm probably one of the first person you see on there. Uh, you can send me an instant message on there, or share your ideas, or anything like that. Uh, so that's where you find me. Uh, in terms of our, our next steps, uh, we are pushing out a, a ton of new features on Sprinklebit. We're improving our groups. We're improving, we're adding challenges. Um, we're slowly but surely rolling out in China. Uh, on the uh, Sprinkle Exchange side, we're about to, to release some really, really cool things. So I would say just uh, stay tuned and then make sure you're, you're on Sprinklebit so, so we can uh, uh, keep in uh, contact. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.